0: Good morning, Erica.
1: Good morning, Sean. Do you know,
0: it occurs to me, actually, as I was lying awake in bed this morning, that it's very rude of us. We start every show saying hello to each other and we don't even say hello to the listeners.
1: We should start that right now. Okay. Take two. Okay.
0: Hello, listeners.
1: And good morning, Sean. Hang on. What?
0: You've got to say hello to the listeners, too.
1: Oh. I thought you did that for both of us. Oh, okay.
0: On behalf of both of us. (laughs) Good morning, rising listeners. Do you know, we have been doing this now for. Is this episode 17? Mm. It is. We don't do this for ourselves. We do this for you, listeners. So it's lovely that you can spend this time and be with us as we unpack some of these things. And it also occurred to me that we sit down and talk about some of the things that are resonating for us and some of the things that we're observing in the world around us. But we're actually doing this to be useful. So I feel like we should start by inviting people to share their thoughts and ideas. And we have an email address and we've mentioned it once and that was a long time ago. So I should mention it again, that we do have an email address and it is rising.listeners. That's you at gmail.com. I should do that more clearly because that sounds like a very long email address. Rising.listeners at gmail.com. And we've set that up and that comes to both of us and we would love to hear your thoughts and ideas or your queries or questions or struggles and if we can help shed some light on anything or even pull it apart further, we'd love to do that because ultimately we're doing this to help each other as we make it through this pandemic. We went through a number of different titles, some of them were quite distressing for me and we ended on help please. Because we are seeing a really interesting array of behavior, aren't we?
1: Yeah, I think that as we've discussed, there's been an evolution, um, I think, from the start of the pandemic, and then there was a bit of panic, and then people pulled together, and there was a a much more cohesive group mentality, and we're going to get each other through this. Mm. And then we talked about compassion fatigue, Mm. and how we're running a marathon, not a Mm. race. Not Um, a a short race, thank you. Not a sprint. That we needed to really be in it for the long haul, and it's exhausting.
0: And the rest of the world hasn't stopped. Right. And overnight, this terrible tragedy in Beirut. And you think, you know, as if dealing with all the issues that the pandemic's brought up for us, the rest of the life just continues to be thrown at us, and we have to process the normal stuff that would normally tax us, on top of all the stuff, all the emotional gump that's going on inside of us because of this ongoing pandemic. It just doesn't let up.
1: And I think that we, as well as some of our colleagues, have commented on the behaviours that we're seeing and that it feels as if we're now entering a new phase and it's going to have its own challenges.
0: And working in acute medical care has its own set of behavioural abnormalities, if you like. (laughs) The thing that's really struck me lately is listening to young nurses and I uh, this one story always comes to mind is sitting in this room talking to some young nurses just starting out their careers and one of them looking at me with her eyes wide and she said sean i'm really scared i said why are you scared of going into that ward and working there she said nurses eat their young sean haven't you heard that like what nurses eat their young and just in preparation for this i I told you doing an image search on the internet Eat their young, thinking it'll put up some, you know, polar bear <laughs> or some, some weird African you know, jungle creature, and it was all pictures of nurses. I'm like, what? This is a thing. It's like commonly accepted that nurses eat their young. That's absolutely crazy. And certainly, we work with some wonderful nurses who don't do this, but it's part of the culture of the medical world where it's common practice that experienced practitioners. Take out their frustrations and victimize young, inexperienced practitioners.
1: And it certainly isn't just within nursing. I mean, I think the whole medical profession is guilty and culpable. It's very common for doctors. And there's very much a culture of hazing from the beginning. When you say hazing, what does that even mean? If I had to suffer those same indignities, then I'm going to subject, you know, these. New whippersnappers, it's <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> do American people
0: say whippersnappers? No. I was going to say that didn't no. sound natural. <laughs> Why do we do that to each other? Well, I guess we just do, don't we? And, and you wonder, what is it about a medical setting that makes this such a common practice that it feels like it's the cultural norm in a lot of situations?
1: You know, I think bad behavior goes unchecked a lot in medicine. And I I don't know that's not to say it's okay because it clearly is not okay, Mm. but it does. And I don't know if it's because of the hierarchy or I don't know why.
0: Obviously, in many situations, it can be quite a stressful environment where what you're dealing with is not constant. You have the, the patient's needs and situation can fluctuate and change quite quickly. And perhaps it's often that people are feeling right on the edge of their comfort zone or maybe outside of their comfort zone as they continually work in this changing situation. And perhaps in those situations where you can't control the main thing, you compensate by controlling the little things around you. I was fascinated in my first job as a psychologist. The manager who oversaw the the spinal rehab unit that I worked in, her husband died and obviously She had no control over watching her husband's demise and death but she became the hardest person to work for through that time because as she lost control of that Mm. big thing, she started exerting control over every tiny little thing Mm -hmm. in the unit and we could not say boo, we could not step left without having it be shaped and controlled by her and we really, really struggled and that really opened my eyes to wow. When we lose control of the big things, we really do compensate by controlling small things. And maybe we control the people under us because that's something we can do and we can feel some sense of agency when we do that, as messed up as that seems.
1: Did understanding what was going on in the other aspects of her life give you a bit more compassion or did it enable you to give her some more latitude in her behaviour? I asked the question because... I think it's so valuable to look for the explanation behind the behaviour, Mm. and I'm wondering if...
0: It did, but it still drove us crazy. Sure. Like, it was still very, very hard work, but we hoped it would be a phase that she would go through and come out the other side, which inevitably it was, but never quite recovered to what it was before that time for her. But as I've been reflecting on this, I think of other areas where people operate outside of a, a safe space, and you and I are both fans of Simon Sinek, who's a wonderful author who writes a lot about the marine culture, (laughs) not as in underwater, but as in (laughs) the US Marines. And he talks about they have this very hierarchical structure as well and they often spend most of their time when they're out in the field in high-stress, dangerous situations. But they have this culture that always looks after the little guy. And my favourite book of his is Leaders Eat Last, talking through the concept that when the marines go into the mess hall the commander will make sure that all of his men have got a meal in front of them eating before he will get his meal and start to eat, saying, why can't the rest of the world Mm. model their culture on something like this, where the powerful use their power to look after and uphold the young and the inexperienced so that no matter what's going down, anyone within that group knows that everyone else has got their back and that's the culture that they've built. But somehow in the medical world, we don't have that same level of care for the young, we don't, for the inexperienced. That, that
1: really would turn the hierarchy on its head. I mean, it would be amazing, mm. but it would turn it entirely upside down.
0: And there's this paradox almost that we're so focused on the needs of the individual, namely ourselves, that we forget the needs of the group. And something that really struck me when we were living in Japan They've got it the other way around. The needs of the group always outweighs the needs of the individual. And I kind of got this at a theoretical level. But then one day I was at the school sports day and I was watching these kids do the 100-metre sprint. And this one kid was just so much faster than all the other kids. And he was bolting on ahead and he was, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 metres ahead of all the other competition. And as he got close to the finish line, he realised that he was seriously whooping everyone else. And he looked behind him and he saw them and he slowed right down and he waited for his friends to catch up with him. And then he sped up again and three or four of them ran over the finish line together, big grins on their faces. And I was on the sidelines screaming, Kanbare! which is Japanese for you can do it, as in why are you slowing down? Because I had no idea. Because here I am with my Western mentality of the individual rights You know, Trump the group Mm -hmm. rights, and he has a right to win because he's faster. But in his mind, he didn't want to win; he wanted to go over the finish line with his friends and uphold the group. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, how do we get that mentality into our life so that the emphasis isn't on me succeeding, but it's on us succeeding?
1: Yeah, building that in that culture of support and kindness.
0: Hang on, did you just you just bring it back to kindness, Erica? I do
1: that all
0: the time. (laughs) And perhaps part of this in the medical world is this paranoia about not having the answer, not having the solution, because people look to the medical world to fix stuff, Mm. to have the answer, to have the way forward, to have the treatment to come up with the cure. And so we start to feel paranoid, we start to feel self-conscious or like we are failing. I mean, you even look at the combative language that we use. When people have terminal illness, you know, they're fighting, they're going to win this battle or they lost their battle to cancer. Um, it's almost as though when we can't succeed at making people well, we've failed. How do we learn to say I, I don't know the answer to that?
1: I think it comes down to those same leaders that we were talking about setting the example, right? It has to come from the top. You know, as Simon Sinek says, it's ensuring that the leaders eat last. And in medicine, to me, that looks like those same leaders, showing kindness, and in that situation, the bravery and the courage to say, I don't know.
0: Let's find out together.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Boy, so for people listening to this, I guess that's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? And it's a challenge for me, because as I manage my department and my team, often I'm looked to to have an answer for something or a solution to a problem that, that's troubling people. And we want to do that because we want to be useful. We want to be helpful. So we dig deep and we, we fake it till we make it, right? What's with that? Fake it till we make it? How about learn together and struggle and be okay with not you know, having to fake it? Because what does fake it till you make it even mean? It, it, it means pretend you know what you're doing mm. until you work it out. It's this show no vulnerability until you are invulnerable and you can just have the solution. Can we just all agree to not... <laughs> Can we just not fake it till we make it? Can we fumble till we make it perhaps? Sure. I'm going to make a badge. (laughs) (laughs) I'm fumbling till I make it.
1: Yeah.
0: Just to acknowledge that I don't have the answer and that's okay. And if I'm struggling, I can admit that. I don't need to put up my guard and take it out on those below me. But just to be authentic and say, I don't know. Let's work it out.
1: And that will then give other people the freedom to say, hey, you know what? I don't know either. Or I'm struggling a little too.
0: But what about people who would push back and say, in the medical world or in many different situations, we need to have that hierarchy so that when it hits the fan, we look at the leader and the leader barks an order and we respond because you have to be able to do that in a high-pressure situation.
1: I, I don't think that one negates the other. I think it's okay to be a leader who is collaborative and honest and and shows courage and vulnerability and when it hits the fan can also step up and say, right, these are the next steps and this is what we're doing.
0: Mm. I completely agree. Good. In fact, I've had the privilege of being called into debriefs after there's been a serious code blue situation and it's been the person in charge who's barked the orders and people have responded. And in the debrief, people have said, I felt so impotent, I didn't know what to do and I felt like I wasn't doing everything that you asked And and the medical leader of that situation was able to say... No, you did exactly what you needed to do. And it's because you all did the things that you did that we were able to save that life. And this was a beautifully kind, inclusive, transparent, authentic person who who led beside rather than from above. Mm. But as you say, in that situation was able to step into that leader. Is it autocratic? Is it mm. yeah, that, that autocratic leadership style that you need at some points to get through, but it doesn't have to become the status quo.
1: So what are we leaving with?
0: It's a great question, Erica. <laughs> How do we do this? Is it being okay to model that behavior? Is it being okay to ask for help? Is it being okay with with saying I'm not bulletproof and I don't have the answer and we can work it out together?
1: I guess there are two sides to it, right? It's that we should all try to step into the space of vulnerability and saying I don't know. Mm. And then the flip side is we should also be those people who ask for help when we need it. Mm.
0: And we should also be the people that don't turn a blind eye to that behaviour when we see it and call people on it. I think that's important that we... What is it saying? The behaviour that I tolerate...
1: It's the standard that I walk past is the standard that I accept.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So perhaps not to walk past that behaviour which we don't agree with but to to call it out and say, that looks hard, let's work on this together Mm. rather than eating that poor young person. (laughs) Boy, well that's not an easy little (laughs) challenge. I don't know Erica (laughs) See I'm practicing (laughs) Thanks for the challenge Good luck folk As we Yeah tackle The difficulties That we're going to face Today and tomorrow And the next day And do that With a bit of Humility And a bit of Yeah Transparency And authenticity
1: We're in it together